Now, I'm quite certain that some of you out there are waiting for me to make some Star Wars reference because today is effectively May 4th, and apparently everybody gets all geeked up. I am not one of those people, so if you had it on your bingo card, too bad. But I am Guy Adami. I'm always joined by Dan Nathan. Today is effectually the second day of the Fed meeting. It is Fed Day. This is Market Call. Just a few minutes, EY from SoFi will be joining us. She's not here right now because she's part of the investment committee for the Fast Money Halftime Report, and she will be off momentarily. Today's episode brought to you by our three sponsors. That would be FactSet, Financial Data and Analytics, powered by tomorrow. SoFi, get your money right all in one app, Dan. And of course, we are powered by Open Exchange. You can find them at Open Exchange TV on the Twitter. Market's uh, up. It's down. Right now, it's up. But there's a lot of time left in the day. How are you, Dan? Nathan? I'm doing well, uh, Guy Dami. May the 4th be with you, buddy. I know that you were waiting for me to say that. You know I am a Star Wars fan, and my favorite Star Wars movie is that of most people. It is The Empire Strikes Back. Here. Yes. Not the second movie, the second one sequentially, but okay. All right. Sorry about that. All right. You just said the market's up. You and I were talking earlier. You're like, why did the market reverse? You said, because it's open. We had that little convo, which is always kind of fun here. I think it's kind of interesting to game what exactly market participants are looking for out of the Fed. We know that the CME Fed tracker has been saying for weeks now, it was like nearly 100% probability that they would raise 50 basis points at the meeting today. But guy, I mean, there are some things that they can surprise with. I guess we'll get into that with Liz a little bit here, won't we, Guy? Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to her, as I said, right off the IC, right yeah. to us. It's pretty <laughs> remarkable she's able to make that pivot. But what is really interesting, Dan, the market's treading water here. We found support. We'll look at those lines in a little while. But there have been some pretty unmitigated, yeah. I don't know how to spell that, disasters. And I think you brought with you, Dan, Nathan, yeah. some pretty cool-looking graphics. Let's start out by saying that the NASDAQ is basically unchanged, but I'm looking at my screens and I'm seeing a lot of disasters out there. High valuation tech, high growth tech that's been hit hard is getting hit hard again today. And that has been the playbook over the last four or five months as the Fed has indicated that they are going to raise rates going all the way back to late November. Right? Guy, When that NASDAQ had that intraday reversal, I think it was like on the 29th or so of November, where that was the day or the week of the Fed pivot. Well, the fact that these stocks are still getting bludgeoned here four or five months later is pretty astounding. And I just want to read this tweet thread. This came out Friday afternoon. This is a tweet thread. This is by Bill Gurley. He is a legendary private markets investor. He is a partner at Benchmark Capital. VC firm. And so this is really important. I hear you say things like this all the time. An entire generation of entrepreneurs and tech investors built their entire perspective on valuation during the second half of a 13-year amazing bull market run. The unlearning process could be painful, surprising, and unsettling to many. I anticipate denial. And then he goes into some thoughts. Now, this is a really important one here, guys talking about multiples here. So we talk all the time about stocks, how far they are down in the year, how far they are from this high. He says previous all-time highs are completely irrelevant. It's not cheap because it's down 70%. Forget the prices happen. Valuation multiples are always a hack process that dangerous to use. If you insist that 10 times should be considered amazing and at the upper limit, he's talking about sales, 
over that is silly. Okay, so let's talk about that perspective about, okay, who cares about where it came from? Where is the market pricing it right now on valuation that makes sense? And this is what we're kind of seeing. Market participants are in denial about this right now, guy. That's exactly right. And Jim Chanos <laughs> talks about it all the time as well. I mean, it really doesn't matter where stocks have traded in the past. That's really no arbiter of where they should be or where they're going in the future, or in fact, if they ever will get back to those levels. But I think when Bill Gurley says it, and again, he's just now another person that's adding to a laundry list of people that are sort of throwing caution on things and saying, hey, you don't know what you're about to see. I've seen it in my career. A lot of people haven't, but brace yourself. And we heard that from Paul Tudor Jones. I mean, we've been hearing it from a lot of people. We've been hearing from Fed officials, Dan. But for whatever reason, the market doesn't seem to care. But I will tell you, Bill Gurley, exactly right. We talk about valuation multiples in context. It's not the only thing we look at. But what he said is you'll be shocked to learn that the market values your stocks on free cash flow and earnings. Go figure, Dan Nathan. Yeah. Go well, figure. Well, it's interesting. To me, this is interesting because we use a bunch of different inputs here. But Lyft is the disaster du jour. Amanda made a great little mm, slide today. We've great. seen a bunch of these. It's down 33% today. It's down 52% on the year. This stock heading into the print last night was down 50%, okay, from its 52-week highs. And now it's down 30%. You can do some simple math. I mean, stocks, just because they're down 50%, doesn't mean they can't get cut in half again. Earlier in the week, it was Chegg. Last week, it was Teladoc down 40% a day. The week before that, it was Netflix down 35% a day. And again, I think it makes sense to think about this in the context of like, how do we bottom? How do these things find a bottom? Investors come in and say, I'm okay with the valuations relative to the gross prospect, relative to the macro environment where valuations have come down. You and I, we've been talking about this a lot. There's a lot of great companies. It's not the company's fault that they were trading at 30, 40 times sales. It was what investors were willing to pay. But now we're in that phase where there's a bit of rationality. Look at this next slide, guy. There are some massive tech stocks as far as market cap that still trade at egregious price to sales. We have Snowflake. It's down 50% of the year. $55 billion market cap. It still trades at 26 and a half times. CrowdStrike, $46 billion only down 11%, massively outperformed 20 times. You see the other names here. There are some egregious valuations that have yet to correct. No, and you can name like Zscale or in the cybersecurity world that people didn't care about valuations in the fall of last year. Now, obviously, valuations matter. And it's important to take a look at these companies, again, in the context of their market cap. You're not talking about half a billion dollar companies. So you're talking about companies, $55 billion with Snowflake. And by the way, this is only year-to-date performance. My sense is if you went back to July, August of last year, those numbers would be even worse, Dan Nathan. So point is, to your earlier question about how do you bottom? Well, trying to pick a bottom based on where something was six, nine months ago at an all-time high, I think that's a bit of a fool's errand. It's important to understand it, again, just for context, but you talk about this all the time. The granddaddy of them all in terms of exactly this was Amazon 22 years ago when it went down 94-ish percent. And I think you and I can both agree that it's a very different NASDAQ. These are very different companies. They have proven business models. They have great products. They have great modes. They have great management. Some of them have really good balance sheets. One of the problems they have is they're not particularly profitable trading at multiples that just cannot persist. So if you talk about how do we bottom, we don't bottom until some of these get really ugly. We have a chart real quickly, a CrowdStrike guy. What does this thing look like to you? 
you're like an amateur chartist here. What does that look like to you? Well, you know, it's interesting. In my younger days, apparently people suffer from dandruff. One of the shampoos was Selsun Blue. The others was called Head and Shoulders. And yeah. to me, Dan, this looks like exactly that, which means in terms of a measured move, you still got some pain on the downside in this sucker. Well, right. And to get to that neckline at 150, which was the breakout level late 2020, that's another 20%. And who knows if you're going by that measured move, you're right. It's well below that. Let's also look at Snowflake really quickly. Again, this was a company that was trading above $400 in November. You see where it is right now here at $174. I mean, that downtrend is nasty. You see it trying to hold that March low. The $120 price was its IPO price. Dude, that's what? You do the math on that. We're not done until some of these names get absolutely wrecked. R-E-K-T. What am I saying? I'm not sure, but I think it starts with a W. Rack, that's what the crypto kids said. What I'll say is this, though, and you're not saying this, and neither am I, but I think a lot of people interpret these charts as saying these are bad companies. These are not bad companies. These are all actually extraordinarily innovative companies. And to a certain extent, it wasn't their fault that they traded at the valuations that they did. And by the way, Dan, I think you would submit as well. Many of these companies that we haven't mentioned raise money on the back of some of these moves to the upside. Good for them. That was a smart thing to do. So it's not like these are bad companies. It's just that the valuations were ridiculous. And although a lot of these have been cut in half to that earlier slide, there's probably still room until it finds valuations on whatever metric you want to look at that makes sense. It's certainly not here. True dat, guy. It's wrecked. R-E-K-T. That's what the kids say with a T at the end. R-E-K-T. R-E-K-T. Wrecked. Wrecked. Okay. All right. Listen, let's bring Liz in here. She's waiting. Yeah, she's hot off the investment committee with our good friend Scott Wapner. Liz, you heard a little what we were saying. How are you? By the way. How are you, Liz? How are you? I'm good. I'm great. There's a thing happening today. There's a Fed meeting today, I heard. We're going to get into that. We just wanted to kind of set the stage. You heard us talk about a bunch of individual names and valuations. Give us your sense, though, about that. How do you bottom? Because we keep getting this question. I'm sure yeah. you get it. Are we there yet? I'm going to make a couple of points. Valuations are always a terrible timing mechanism. And you guys have made that point in different words. As an investor, you should never be buying something just because of where it's trading on a valuation basis that day or that week. It's not going to work that way. I think I talked about this last week. If you look at something like the Case Shiller PE, and you can, if you're bored, you can do a dot plot of it for over many, many years. It doesn't actually predict forward returns unless you're looking at it over a five to 10 year period. So, anyway, valuations are a terrible timing mechanism. What I would say about how do you know if you found bottom? Something that was really interesting to me about the most recent leg down in the correction on the broad market is that the bottom from earlier in the year was about 4171, I think, on the S&P. We blew through it, but we didn't blow through it very far. We only went back down to 4130-ish. If I was expecting it to go even further down, I would have thought it would have gone another 5 to 10% right away and just found a new bottom that was further down. So I think it's possible we saw it already because I still stand by the idea that the anticipation of all of this was worse than the actual event. And you guys talked about the valuations of a lot of these high growth names coming down. I know that a lot of them are still looking expensive on a PE basis, but what I think has happened since the end of November is that the correction and all of this fear over rising rates has taken the bloat out of the market. And now the fundamentals matter. And that's why we're seeing such big reactions on earnings news. And that's how the market should work. 
The market should react to earnings news. The market should react to fundamentals. Yeah, but the only thing, Liz, I'll just say, if you're saying that we're close to a bottom, is that one of the things that we didn't incorporate into our little thesis here as we were talking about this, if you go back to the post.com crash, which started in the spring of 2000, didn't bottom out until 02, and the market topped out in 07, and the financial crisis bottomed out in 09, March of 09. Time is a really important thing. So none of these stocks are coming back anytime soon. Now, that doesn't really matter because we know how top-heavy these major indices are. That's just kind of my quick take here. I think Guy agrees with me. The idea of protracted bear markets, the Fed has put an end to it. And Guy, I know that you think that's a bit of a problem here. Well, it is a bit of a problem. And we have a question. By the way, you mentioned bloat. That's just such a great word. And you also said anticipation. And by the way, Carly Simon was announced as going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, along with Pat Benatar, long overdue, but I digress. Question to you, EY, and this is specifically to you, because you were way ahead of the curve and correct in terms of saying the market change from buy the sell-offs in terms of that was basically de rigueur for so long. And then you said it was a sell the rally market. But here's the question. Do you feel that everyone is too bearish now? Last month, it was right to fade the rally. Now that it's faded, everyone has downside price targets. That's from our man, Jonathan Montgomery. Is everybody too bearish in your opinion? Well, I do think that sentiment is a little lopsided. I mean, we're at a level right now, if you look at the bears versus bulls, where the bears are at the fifth highest reading they've ever been. And the other times that it's been this high were 2008 and 1990. So I do think that we're lopsided from a sentiment perspective, and that gives us a nice opportunity to bounce from this point. That doesn't mean we're going to bounce and everything's going to be straight up for the rest of the year. We're still facing a lot of headwinds. And this is the thick of it as far as the Fed goes. We're going to see probably 50 today, but still the June meeting and the July meeting are really important and we need to be able to confirm peak inflation. So there's a reason to be cautious. And I think that we're still in a cautious territory. But yeah, I do think people are a little overextended on the bear side. Yeah, you make a great point about some of those sentiment readings. It is pretty nasty. And we know that we're going to have this event where we're going to have a lot of clarity or maybe no clarity. And therefore, the lack of clarity causes further downside volatility. Obviously, more clarity, I think the easier it is for investors to get their arms around what's in store for them for the next few months. I'll just say this. I don't think S&P earnings estimates have come down hard enough, given all of the uncertainties we know. And that really will be the thing. Once we have a good sense that maybe analysts, strategists, investors have overshot estimates of the downside. That's probably when the market bottoms, but that happens later this year. I want to hit this really quickly. This is a guy that I think a lot of people follow as they follow you on Twitter, Liz. Ryan Dietrich, he's talking about the history of 50 basis point increases for the Fed. He's saying other than 2087, there's been some very solid returns after that. And I guess my quick response would be, What's different this time, right? I just threw down a handful of things. And there's more. Surging inflation, supply chain disruption, deglobalization, war. What is it good for? Surging dollar, historically high multiples. Guy, what am I missing here? Because it's a different market than all those other times. And now when you think about just kind of the decoupling of deglobalization in general and what that means for margins in the face of high inflation in a higher rate environment, I think that's the big difference here. Of course, it's different. It's always different. I mean, the way the market reacts might not be different, but in terms of some of the characteristics of this, you nailed all of them. And surging inflation, a lot of people are going to say we hit peak inflation. I heard Squawk Box this morning talking about exactly that. But peak inflation, don't confuse it with the fact that inflation could stay sticky for the foreseeable future. And that means somewhat into next year, I would think. So that's clearly different. 
because that hasn't been a problem in the last four or five decades, number one. And valuations do matter at a certain point. And nobody cared about valuations seemingly for the last 18 months prior to November when interest rates were zero. And valuations matter in a rising rate environment. I think that's different as well. And now you're talking about a lot of people. I still think leverage is a problem in the system. Maybe not so much on banks' balance sheet, but this Federal Reserve is going to try to whittle down a $9 trillion balance sheet in the midst of rising rates. How is that going to play out? So all those things, Dan, I would submit are different. Yeah, Liz, any surprises? I mean, anything, you have the S&P down 12% of the year. You have the NASDAQ down 20%. We know that the Fed is very cognizant of where asset prices are, right? And what's different about this time versus 2000, and you were probably like, in fourth grade back then is that, you know, College. like they were trying to tamp down an asset bubble at the time. They didn't yeah. think that they were right. going to be hiking into a recession or a weakening economy. Now, we've had a bunch of mixed economic data of late that suggests that maybe just the thought of higher rates, and we know that the bond market moved in front of the Fed raising here, maybe that's done a little bit here. I'm just curious, though, because it really feels like if they go too hard, they could put us in a recession. And then it really is that R word. It's not the fact that we had a 1.5% negative print in Q1, and maybe it's a small negative print in Q2. But the fear of recession is the thing or the acknowledgement that causes corporates to stop spending on R&D and hiring and all that sort of stuff and starts consumers to kind of pull back on discretionary spending. We're going to have another recession at some point. And I can almost guarantee you that the Fed will be blamed for part of it. They're not going to be able to avoid that. I don't think we're going to have a recession this year. And the other thing, if you look at that GDP print, I mean, we've talked about this, we've belabored this point, I'm sure, but it was because of trade. If we go into a recession because of trade, it means that we went into a recession because our demand was too strong. And that makes my head explode. So if that's the case, let's say that happens. We go into a recession because trade is enough of a drag next quarter, too. That's a technical recession. I see. I disagree. We're still in a place. I disagree with you, Liz. I actually don't think that's the case. I think, again, if you go back and look at my list of things, look at what's happened to supply chains, look at deglobalization. We are going to emerge from this war in Eastern Europe here with a real bipolar, you know what I mean, like set of trading partners. In a guy. So trade might be the next shoe to drop as it relates to that. And that might be the thing that causes inflation to stick around. So I don't mean to be punchy about it. I just think when you're explaining away a negative GDP print, not you, or I've seen a lot of people do it. I think let's give it a little time here because, again, we could be mm -hmm. whistling past the graveyard because there might be forces that are working underneath our feet that we just can't figure it out. Listen, you know this. You and I have been talking about this. Guy and I have been talking about this for six to nine months. I was firmly in the transitory camp. I didn't see COVID lasting as long as it did in a war in Europe, making all of these problems as it relates to inflation that much worse. But it's happened. And now the likelihood of some of these massive shifts sticking around for longer is here. I think it's a yeah. dangerous situation to explain some of those things away. We went in the opposite direction because I was not in the transitory camp. And now yeah. we're on the flip side of this argument. Look, I don't want to downplay the trade thing and the dollar isn't helping. That's for sure. But it would need to be something that broke the consumer. And what would break the consumer is if inflation stuck around and actually changed our spending patterns. So the real question is, let's say we avoid recession this time. We probably have one in 2023. And what's going to be blamed is inflation and the fact that we had to get ourselves out of this. So what's different about it this time? The Fed has to go at this with a really heavy hammer. 
And we're not sure how the stock market's going to react. I think the stock market has tried to already predict what was going to happen, and it's corrected enough for now. But looking at the rest of the year, I still think, and call me Pollyanna, I still think that there's a decent possibility that we can confirm peak inflation. The Fed doesn't have to do 10 more hikes like the market is pricing in. And the second half of this year feels like a lot of a relief. And then you have different sectors coming back in leadership and you have probably tech that drives a little bit of a rally. Now, that doesn't mean that 2023 is going to be great. I think 2023 is still going to be a problem. And that's a great point. What you're discussing there, what you're bringing up is the fact how the Fed can navigate this through the lens of the stock market. Maybe you're right. Maybe they'll front load this thing. Maybe inflation will abate to the point where they don't have to be nearly as aggressive as everybody thinks they are. And maybe this market has found a bottom. But here we are. And we talk about minding the gap. So this is a decent S&P chart. And you mentioned we sort of flushed the other day. We did bounce. I actually think we got down about 4065. Not that it matters, but the 4000 level was the level that I've been looking for a while. But you look at this chart. And again, you were the one back in October, November that said the world changed. Now you have to sell the rallies. And if you look at this chart, that's been right. At what point does this look interesting to you? I think you might have just said it's sort of looking interesting right now. It is looking interesting right now, but if I had to make a list of stuff I'd buy right now, I'd still buy bonds first. I think today before the meeting is a great opportunity to buy bonds. I don't know if we have it, Amanda, the balance sheet that I made about the economy. One of the things just so that I can keep myself honest is I started to make a list of assets and liabilities in the environment, in the economy, and looking at what's fighting against us still and what's really supporting us. It turns out the liabilities column is still longer than the assets column. But I think over time and over summer, some of that will balance out. Now, I don't know that I would go in and just broadly buy the S&P though. So even if you're feeling like it looks interesting and maybe the valuations are looking a little more interesting, I'm not going to just buy SPY and call it a day. I think you do have to be choosy. I would still be buying high quality tech. I'd be buying healthcare. I would, again, be buying bonds. And then if I'm right and we have a relief in the second half of the year, if earnings stay strong, if you've got not necessarily a dovish pivot, but a relaxation on Fed policy, then you probably see some of those cyclicals rally back too. And that's a bounce in things like financials and industrials and even small cap. But I know that's way out on a limb and people are not going to like that I said that. So I'll just whisper it for now. We'll talk about it later. But I think you have to really think about that. And if you're an investor and you want the opportunities in this kind of market, you have to think about it from a specific sector standpoint. And banks, I think, are trying to bottom after some two consecutive really bad prints from Q4 and Q1. And maybe valuations are starting to make some sense. But I'll just say the longer the COVID stuff sticks around, the longer the war and the sanctions on Russia, the quicker that Europe ends up in a recession. And maybe we're not far behind that. I think that banks will reflect, I think, weaker consumer demand. We're already starting to see it with mortgage rates higher here. I just look at that S&P chart, though, and I say to myself, that gap that Guy just mentioned is that vaccine gap from late 2020. And that had trillions of dollars of fiscal and monetary stimulus behind it. At the time, they were doing exactly what I think the Fed, what the administration, what everybody wanted to do. They wanted everybody to start buying everything. Okay, And the problem with that is that the Fed was still buying $120 billion of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. So we overshot to the downside. I am with Guy Adami. We're going to overshoot to the downside. And if you look at that pre-pandemic high, it was down there at like 3,600 or so. 
I think we go back there, or maybe it's that September 1st, 2020 high when that huge NASDAQ reversal. I don't think we go there in a straight line. I don't think we crash. I just think that things are going to be uglier this year because it's going to take some time to parse all this out. Let's look at the NASDAQ 100, though, because to your point, you think big tech this is going to leave. And I don't disagree with you. And you've been hearing me say Qs and twos. That's the thing. I don't think rates are going meaningfully higher. And I do want to own mega cap tech. I just think, again, mega cap tech has not corrected at least Microsoft and Apple. And if they were to, if the investors deem 26 times too expensive for those two stocks that make up nearly $5 trillion in market cap, then we're going back towards that 12000 That's the target on the QQQ to the downside. Guy, talk to me a little bit here about the idea of overshooting to the upside and then the likelihood of overshooting to the downside. The market, given everything we know, the S&P is not bottoming down 12% and the NASDAQ is not bottoming down 20%. I think that's exactly right. We talk about panic, and obviously I mentioned this from time to time, but for new audience members, we associate panic with selling. But I would submit in terms of the overshoots to the upside that we've seen many times over the last few years, those overshoots have been panic buying. And to think that you can't have an overshoot to the downside, I think it's just foolish. And I think we're on the precipice of that. And again, it's not just me saying, I mean, we read Bill Gurley's text, you heard Paul Tudor Jones. I mean, there've been a laundry list of people that have come out over the last month, month and a half, basically warning against getting all in here in the stock market. And I'm not suggesting that what Liz is doing at all, but people are saying, hey, it's a little bit different this time in terms of the pivot that the Fed has correctly made. So we'll see. We should look, though, I mean, it's important to look just to keep it in context. You 95 years worth of data, and you can look at some of the returns in large cap stocks. We could slide it here, Earl, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And Liz can speak to this because this is exactly her point. You, know, you have to look at things in context, Liz. Quickly, if you take a look at this, outside of September, seemingly pretty well over the last 95 or so years. The September thing is just because there have been some notable crashes that happened in September. But one of the big reasons that I put this chart together is because this is the month where everybody starts to say, sell in May and go away. And I've never understood that because June and July historically have been pretty good. And August has been pretty good too. So I don't think that that's the pattern that you should be thinking about. However, if you go to the next chart that looks almost exactly like this, you're going to see that we are in a year where we have a midterm election. And the market does not like midterm elections. So this is a time when you see May down on average, June down on average, and we stay kind of choppy until after the election, or at least until much closer to the election. So this year is different. We've got a lot of different headwinds. And that's why I talked about before the economic balance sheet that I'd put together. There's still more liabilities on it. But I think it's shaping up to look like the second half, and maybe it's a backloaded second half yeah. even. It's shaping up to look like the second half could be pretty nice. I'll tell you one thing. This was really interesting. If you go back to the midterms in 2018, and I think that when the Dems took the House, it was the Kavanaugh hearings, the SCOTUS hearings that really changed the dynamic. And I do think it's interesting that they had this leak about the Roe versus Wade decision Mm -hmm. that might be coming out. And some of the takes that I heard initially was that this might do the exact same thing, where just a week or two ago, it looked like the Dems were going to get trounced in the midterm. So Again, I would just throw all of this as another level of uncertainty that we really haven't had to deal with since the 2020 election. Guy, real quickly, because all of those things that we talked about, we did not mention high yield credit. You've been talking about that. You've been talking about some of these ETFs that track at the HYG, the JNK. 
and kind of the breakdowns that we've seen. We threw together a 20-year chart of the HYG. You were targeting that 80 level. We see how it overshot to the downside during 2020 when the fear was that we might have a credit crisis. But that's one thing the Fed averted here. What's your take on high-yield credit, especially as we go into this rising rate environment? I think Liz would agree with this as well. I mean, this is credit. It's one thing that absolutely has to be on your radar screen because until at least the last month and a half, two months, it seemingly everything was fine. Now you're starting to see some cracks in the armor here, and it comes in the form of the HYG. You can look at the LQD as well, and that looks even worse. So when credit becomes a problem, and if you just look at this chart, I would submit HYG moves to the downside, which you've seen a few of them over the last couple decades, sort of been the precursor of some pretty nasty moves in the equity market. And you're starting to see it roll over. This thing typically doesn't trade all that robustly. And a move from 88 to 78 and a half, 79 doesn't seem like a big deal. But when you look at it and see what's happened over the years on the back of this, I think it's something you absolutely have to watch, Dan. We covered a lot of bases here. We got extra Liz, which is kind of fun, pre-Fed day here. Liz, any parting words as far as what you're expecting and what might be a surprise coming out of this thing? If we're talking tomorrow afternoon at one o'clock, I know that you're going to be in parts unknown. That's why you're here with us on a Wednesday. So we do appreciate you changing it up. Give us one surprise that you think could happen out of this Fed presser today. I think a surprise would be that they start to focus on using their other tools more than rates. We obsess so much over the rate movement. If they start to talk about a more aggressive balance sheet runoff, then we've got tightening from more directions. Or if they start to talk about engaging in outright selling of the balance sheet, then we have to go back and reevaluate where valuations should be for the rest of summer. I agree with that. I mean, that has not even been talked about. I don't even know if they're legally allowed to do it. I have no clue what their mandates are, what they're allowed to do, not allowed to do. But if selling assets to reduce the balance sheet comes up, I don't think that's particularly bullish. Clearly, though, I'll say this, you must be headed to like Iceland or something with that scarf, because here in May, (laughs) in the tri-state area, people typically don't wear scarves, but clearly you're just getting prepared. It's rainy and gross outside. Much colder region. Um, But that's, listen, we dig you. The audience digs you, which is even more important. And we wish you a great trip. We're not going to divulge. I happen to know myself, but it doesn't really matter. But that's it, Dan. That's today's market call. Strap in, people, because these cats are about to say something, and God only knows what could happen. Well, I want to thank our sponsors, FactSet, SoFi, and, of course, Open Exchange. And look, if you dig EY as much as we do, check her out on Twitter, at Liz Young Strat, and sign up for her daily newsletter at SoFi.com daily to read Liz's articles, which drop on Thursdays, which happens to be tomorrow. Take a look at things, folks. Take a snapshot now because it's going to look a lot different in 45 minutes. Later. See ya. 